This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett asks, What is poverty? And now, here's Father Fred Gatchett. Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on Double-Edged Sword, we make it our point to try to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. And so I'm at the Divine Mercy Radio Pavilion this afternoon to try to um, put down a show here that it's going to try to cut to the heart of a deceptive idea that floats around about poverty and um, how this is sort of a complicated issue, probably a lot more complicated than that that we're led on to believe. A lot of times people just think, well, poverty means there's somebody that doesn't have enough, and so therefore someone else is obligated to help them get enough, something like that. And I think what I'll be able to demonstrate on this program is that it's not quite that simple, number one. But number two, we always have to be careful whenever I hear people say, well, it's complex. Um, It's not as simple as you want to make it out. It's not black and white. It's not always cut and dry. Whenever people appeal to the complexity argument, usually what they're trying to do is they're just trying to muddy the waters so that either one, nothing gets done, or two, what they want to get done gets done. It can be sort of a manipulative tool. And so um, since I believe that, I don't want to use that tool on the listeners today of saying, well, poverty is a complex issue, and so therefore let me have my way. Um, We're not going to do that. I believe that um, with any complex issue, what we have to do is we break it down into simpler issues that we can understand, and then we can arrive at the truth. And that's what we're going to try to do today on this um, chapter of Double-Edged Sword. So whenever we talk about poverty, you know, what, what is the problem with trying to solve this problem? Well, for one thing, I think the problem is just unsolvable. If you look back, Jesus himself in the Gospels, whenever the, the woman comes in and anoints him with, with expensive oil, um, someone says, you know, this should have been um, sold and this, this anointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. You can be kind to them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. Okay, so Jesus himself says we're always going to have poverty, we're always going to have poor people, and we're going to have to deal with that. So the thing is, though, is that, you know, when when we read the rest of the Gospels, you know, whenever Jesus talks about heaven and hell, he talks about hell a lot more than he talks about heaven. And whenever he talks about hell, and he talks about people being in hell, um, it's kind of interesting. There's sort of two tines of the fork. One of the pokers says that people are in hell not for what they did, but for what they failed to do. And um, in Catholic land, we talk about we talk about sins of omission. That is a sin that I commit by omitting or failing to do what I should do, and sins of commission or sins that I commit by doing something that I should not do. And so, for example, if I steal something, that's a sin of commission. I committed the sin of theft. If I do not honor and respect my parents, that's a sin of omission. I am, I am omitting something that I should do. Or if I fail to go to Mass on Sunday, that's a sin of omission. You know, I failed to do something that I'm supposed to do, and that's go to church on Sunday. Well, whenever Jesus talks about people burning in hell in the, in the Gospels, 
he, especially in his parables, the reason why they're in hell is for a sin of omission. And what did they omit? They omitted to care for and help the poor. In the, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, the rich man finds himself in torment in the flames. And why is he in torment in the flames? Not because he was rich. Um, there are many people in our times who will, will say that being rich is a sin. Well, it's not. Um, instead, the guy's in hell because he didn't help Lazarus. He, he didn't help the poor. And then in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, whenever Jesus talks about the end of the world, that I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was naked and you clothed me, a foreigner and you welcomed me, those people go to heaven. The ones who go to hell are the ones who are guilty of the sins of omission. They omitted, they failed to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, welcome the foreigner, and so on. And so the, I think that you know, we can see that the, the gospel imperatives for us to help the poor are very, very clear. There's no doubt about that. We have an obligation to help the poor, and many people do so. You know, here in town, there's the community assistance senator. There's first call for help. St. Joseph's Parish runs the St. Joseph's Food Pantry. Around the holidays, you know, we have the Salvation Army and the little red kettles outside the stores. You know, Marine Corps, Toy for Tots. There's all sorts of things that people do to help the poor, and that's all great stuff, and that should, that's praiseworthy stuff. But the question still begs, though, then, is, you know, well, then, what about the poor? How are we going to help the poor? What's our obligation towards the poor? Well, if you read a little bit further in the New Testament, and especially you read the writings of St. Paul, you know, St. Paul says that at the end of the second letter of the Thessalonians, he says, you know, I understand that some of you are being busybodies, minding the business of other people. And he says, we exhort all, all such people to work quietly and earn their own bread, earn their own keep. You know, in the letter of Galatians, um, St. Paul says Every, everyone must carry his own weight. And um, in the first letter of Timothy, you know, Paul tells Timothy that the church has an obligation to help the widows who are truly widows. That is to say, women who have lost their spouse, they have no, no brothers or sisters, no children, no grandchildren to help them out. They're totally alone. But um, St. Paul says for those who do have family members, family members you know, have an obligation to help each other out. And, you know, St. Paul says whoever who, who doesn't help these, especially members of the family, are worse than an unbeliever and they have repudiated their faith. So we can see here that the whole poverty thing is kind of a multi-leveled and a multifaceted thing. You know, poverty in the United States is one thing. You know, poverty in Haiti is quite another. You know, in the United States, you know, people that are poor here, there's tons of aid and programs and, you know, just direct cash that can help them buy food to eat. But then we even have educational programs. You know, people can, can sign up for classes at Votech. People can get low-interest loans to go to college. We have all kinds of ways that people can better themselves and then go out and take advantage of the opportunities that exist for people to, to get better and higher-paying jobs. Even just if someone was to take a, a, a low-wage, minimum, a minimum-wage job, um, the minimum wage is currently seven-something an hour. If you are working a regular 40-hour work week, that's 2,000 hours a year. And if we just – I know the minimum wage is more than $7 an hour, but let's just keep it at seven so we can do the math in our heads. But if, if you're working roughly 2,000 hours a year times $7 an hour, that's $14,000 a year. Now, that's not much. As Walter Williams says, living on a minimum wage is not great shakes. That's his term. But – the thing of it is, for a single person, the federal poverty level is $11,000. And so someone making minimum wage is not living in poverty. They are above the poverty level. Now, the thing of it is, is if you look at the data that comes from the Census Bureau, they are the first people to say that, well, our 
figures that we come up with for poverty are for comparison purposes. And that's kind of interesting in and of itself. And again, this is to me, and this is going to kind of be the core of, of this particular broadcast on Double-Edged Sword, is to try to really more than anything identify the difficulty and the problem with trying to define what poverty is. Because I think the problem is when we look around and we see all the, you know, the noise that's made and the hand-wringing and everything that goes on about the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. Well, the main reason why I think this goes on is because we do not have a clearly defined or we don't have a clear definition and we have no agreement among various peoples as to what poor is. I mean, again, you, know, you, can, you, can go, you can go to the statistics that the government puts out, you know, the Census Bureau and the, and the, the Commerce Department and so on. Um, you can look at, at the numbers they put out and they say, well, you know, poverty for one person is 11,000 a year. You know, the poverty level, I think, for a family of four, for mom and dad and a couple of kids, is like 23,000 a year. And again, anyone who's listening to me, you know, the, the median income in the United States is 51,000 a year, medium, median household income. And so if someone is sitting there saying, well, you know, yeah, sure, you try to support a spouse and two kids on 23000 a year. Well, again, there's the problem. Um, now, it, it might be that maybe the government's saying, well, that, you know, we've done our research and you should be able to get by on this. You know, granted, you're not going to, you know, take Disneyland vacations and you're not going to be driving brand new cars and you're not going to own a vacation home with that kind of an income, but you will get by. Maybe that's what they're saying. I don't know, but that's the problem. I don't know, and you don't either. And so that's what we're going to try to get to the bottom of on this installment of Double-Edged Sword. So again, when we talk about the poor, first of all, we have to define what the poverty is. Is it just a lack of cash? Is it a lack of opportunity? Is it a lack of, of upward mobility? Because what happens in this country, and you, you can tune in on the news anytime you want, and they'll sit there and they say, well, you know, here we have Miss Matilda Jones. Um, she's an unwed mother and she has to hold down two jobs just so she can keep her baby in baby formula and diapers. And it's like, OK, well, there is a snapshot of poverty right there. And so the thing of it is, you know, you'll have some politician will get a hold of that and they'll go to Congress and they'll go, oh, well, you know, back in my district, you know, there's Matilda Jones. She's an unwed mother and she has to hold down two jobs just to keep her baby in formula and diapers. And therefore, you know, pass this program so we can give more money to people like Matilda Jones. And it's like, well, okay, I suppose you can do that. You know, this country now, we've got 50 years plus of experience of trying to give people money to get them out of poverty. You might notice it hasn't worked. In fact, the single greatest um, poverty demographic in this country is unwed mothers with children. Um, the greatest way that you can help people get out of poverty is to have them get married, stay married, and have babies. Um, those people don't tend to have a very high poverty rate. And in fact, again, one of my heroes, um, Dr. Walter Williams, who is a, a professor of economics at George Mason University in Fairfax, West Virginia, um, he himself is an African-American. And he says, you know, if we go and we do the numbers, we look at, okay, who's poor and who's not? And, you know, it will show that, well, you know, blacks and minorities and unwed mothers and so forth are disproportionately poor. And he goes, well, but let's not test for, and again, he's kind of a college professor, so he's used to doing these, these, um, these statistics and data and, and questionnaires and so on. He goes, let's not test for race. Let's test for lifestyle. Let's test for, let's find out, let's find people who got married, had babies, and stayed married. And when you test for that, 
you find that there is no difference in the United States of people living in poverty, whether black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. And so we can see that at least in the United States, a big indicator of poverty isn't so much economics, it's morality, it's lifestyle decisions, it's, it's you know, things that, that people decide to do with their lives. And that if you get married, have babies, stay married, if you graduate from high school, if you do these various things, basically take advantage of the infrastructure and the goodies that the culture provides for us, you will more than likely avoid poverty. Now, again, everybody has been so conditioned and brainwashed by CNN and stuff like that. Someone right now is listening to this broadcast and going, well, Father, you're just out of touch. I mean, you know, there's a person who lives next door to me, and they did just what you said. They got married. They had their babies. They stayed married. But they're poor because one of their kids had this terrible disease, and it just destroyed the family's finances, you know, trying to drive them to and from Kansas City three times a week for treatments and so on. And they did things right, and they're still poor. It's like, well, okay, that's very sad, and we need to help people like that. Those are the kind of people that the community should should circle the wagons around and say, hey, what can we do to help you out? There's no question about that. But just because you came up with one exception to Walter Williams and what I believe, you know, you know my observation, that if you stay in school, you know, if you finish high school and then go on for some kind of education after high school, whether it's Votech, whether it's college, you know, some kind of technical training, whatever, if you stay in school, if you don't commit any crimes, you stay out of jail, you know, a DUI these days, if you get a first-time DUI, by the time you pay the fines, the court costs, the, the, if you get a diversion, the diversion fees and so on, your attorney's fees, and the sky-high insurance rates you're going to pay in your car for the next five years, a DUI is going to cost you $10,000 or more. And so you can see someone sitting there whining and moaning if they haven't got any money. It's like, well, yeah, you spent it all on your DUI expenses. But that's not society's fault. That's your fault, and you need to take responsibility for that. And so, again, going back then to our model of avoiding poverty, of staying in school, finishing up school and getting some good training, not committing crimes, get married, have babies, stay married, that seems to be the formula for avoiding poverty in this country. And you'll notice that's not rocket scientists. It's not that hard. And so the, I think the, the first thing, in, in, again, is looking at poverty in the United States because poverty in this country is something completely different than poverty in, like, again, say, Haiti, all right? Because at least in the United States, there is the possibility for improvement. There is the possibility for getting some further training and so on. You know, maybe the job that you train for is being phased out and no longer exists. Again, there are plenty of programs around for you to go back to school and retrain for another job. And, you know, people are saying that in our day and age, you know, the, the idea from back in the 1950s was that, you know, you could, you know, go to Votech or go to college and train for a job and have that job until you retired or until you died. And those days are probably gone. You know, the, 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 the economy is changing very quickly and it's going to be necessary for us to go back to school and, you know, retrain probably two or three times in the course of a lifetime for different jobs. And that's all well and good because, again, the country has the, the wherewithal. You know, we have the schools. We have the, the classrooms and everything. We have the classroom space available that if someone needs to go and retrain for a job, they can do so. So you can see that in the United States, poverty is one thing. So there's, there's a guy named um, Robert Rector who's done some significant work on this. He's compared 
poverty from the various the poverty data from the various censuses. And I think the last one he did was from the 2010 census. And um, he was talking about how the average poor household in the United States has a washer, a dryer, a microwave oven, at least two color televisions, cable TV, game console of some kind, you know, a, play, a PlayStation or an Xbox or something like that. The, something like 38% of so-called poor households own their own home. Now, where else in the United States can you own your own home and still be classified as poor? We're the only country in the world that would ever, that, you know, that, that that could happen in. Again, the average poor household owns a car. Um, they have air conditioning, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so when, when you look at poverty in the United States, that's one thing. But when you go to other countries, again, I just picked Haiti out of the blue. I mean, you could also look at Guatemala or Honduras or, you know, go across the ocean and look at some of the impoverished African countries and so on. We see that poverty there is quite a different thing because there, you know, there are, they don't have the infrastructure that we have, the educational infrastructure, to train for better jobs. And then furthermore, the, you know, usually the, the, the corruption and so forth is so inbred into the system that even if you are hardworking and entrepreneurial and, and creative and you're ready to get out there and scrap and try to you know, come bring a new product to market or try to do something, the deck is so stacked against you that it's just pretty hard to do so. And so again, poverty in the U.S. is one thing. Poverty overseas is quite another. This muddies the waters. This make thing, makes things a little bit murky. And so, you know, we have to be able to, um, to, to look at these things and sort of dissect them clearly so that when we talk about poverty, you know, what kind of poverty are you talking about? Are you talking about someone in the United States that made a bunch of dumb decisions in life and now they're reaping the bitter harvest? Or are you talking about someone, you know, in, in a country that's been run by a tyrannical dictator forever and there's just, there's no way out. You know, there's no way out of the poverty. There's no educational opportunities. And even if you do have some kind of an education, there's the, the corruption and so forth is just so stacked against you. You're kind of stuck where you're at. Hopefully we can see those are two different things. But then when we get to talking about poverty itself, let's just stick to the United States since that's where we live. Again, I'm not going to deny for a minute that there are not people right here in Hayes, Kansas, that, you know, through really kind of no fault of their own, just a string of bad luck, whatever, they find themselves in a difficult situation. No question about that whatsoever. At the same time, there are also people in Hayes, Kansas that have done very, very, very dumb things and, and may, you know, may, made very bad decisions, and that's why they're kind of on the skids right now. I was, um, I, if you talk to any priest, we've all got tons of stories of people that come to our doors and have their tales of woe as to why the church should help them out. And I remember some time ago, I was down at the campus center, and I think I was probably pulling weeds out of my flower garden and mowing the grass and getting everything spiffed up for the weekend. And um, this woman comes up driving a like some kind of a Dodge minivan or something. Thing was loaded down the axle. The thing was riding on the axles so low, it's so full of stuff. And she comes out, and I'm mowing the grass. So I stop to shut shut the mower off, and and she comes up, and she, you the preacher here? And I said, well, yeah. And and um, she, well, we're trying to get from I forgot where. We're trying to get up to Minneapolis, St. Paul. She said. And um, we had our car break down earlier in the trip, and we don't have enough money left for gas. Well, the whole time she's giving me this tale of woe, she's got two teenagers with her. And while she's talking, she's doing what teenagers these days do. They've got their phones out and they're hammering away with their thumbs on those screens, texting with their friends and things like that. Well, so here you have someone who you know, claims to be poor. They claim to be having difficulties. They claim to be having problems. And now, therefore, they think that they have some claim against you know, the assets of the church, you know, that the church is supposed to help people, which is true. 
But then they come up and they and you know this woman comes up and gives me this tale of woe. And I said, well, I said, what are you paying for those two cell phone contracts there? And then then she gets very defensive and gets very angry. She says, well, come on, kids. I thought the church was supposed to help people, not judge people. Well, you know that that sort of gets to the heart of the problem that we're facing when we try to define what poverty is, is the fact that there is no definition. And so on the one hand, you know, you say, it's like, well, you know, I realize you're kind of in a bind right now, but it also looks to me like you've made some decisions in the past. You know, is it absolutely necessary? Of course, any teenager listening to this is gonna be like pouring sulfuric acid in their ears right now. But is it really necessary that teenagers have these cell phone contracts where they can run around with these phones and watch movies on their phone and, and text and all this kind of stuff that, that they think they just have to do? And, these, you know, these contracts, you know, are, are very expensive. I mean, especially if you get the unlimited data and text and talk and all this kind of stuff. You know, these things are very expensive. Well, okay, you want to get that for your kid? Fine, get it. But when you do that and then you find yourself needy on another part of your budget, does that necessarily then give you the right to have a claim against somebody else's assets? And that's the big question. You know, the the big question is, is again, since it hasn't been defined, is a cell phone a necessity of life? Now, I am prepared to argue that it is not. Someone else might say, well, Father, you're just living back in the old days. You know, you're old school. You know, in your time, maybe a cell phone wasn't necessary, but now it is. And so I go, well, okay, maybe a cell phone is necessary, but there are varying degrees of these contracts. And, you know, maybe, you know, for example, a teenager just needs the simplest contract that just says all you can do is make telephone calls. And so if you get in a bind and you got to call your parents, if your car breaks down and you got to call for help or whatever, you'll be covered. But do you necessarily have to have all the rest of the bells and whistles? Do you have to have an expensive smartphone that can that can do all these things? And again, I'm prepared to argue no. Someone else might be prepared to argue yes. But the problem is that there is an argument going on instead of having a consensus as to what really defines poverty. And at what point ha- can we say that, look, you know, Billy Bob or Lula Bell, the society has done its part. You know, we have provided, you know, as, as taxpayers, you know, we pay property taxes and so on, and we have provided a system of schools, all right, that um, granted, I mean, the, the Catholic schools tend to produce better results, but there is public education. And, you know, from kindergarten through 12th grade, you can go and receive a public education for next to no out-of-pocket cost of your own because it's all being paid for by the taxpayer. And so in a, in a certain sense, you know, we, you know, the society should be able to say, we've done our part. You know, we provided you with roads, with sewers, with clean water, with schools. You know, we've done all this. Now it's up to you to go in to take advantage of the educational opportunities and so forth that we've set forth for you. Because, again, even after 12th grade, even after being a senior in high school and graduating from high school, which fewer and fewer people are doing, then, you know, we have student loans, we have Pell Grants, we have, you know, means to you know, help people pay for their college educations. You know, there's various gen- very generous programs for people to go to the North Central Kansas Technical College and to learn a valuable trade like electricity or stone masonry or automotive, auto, auto mechanics, um, you know, nursing. There's all kinds of programs out there that a person can do in just a couple of years and be able to go out and make a pretty good living. And so in a certain sense, you know, it seems like we, we, we should have gotten to a point where we're going to say, look, you know, we as a society, we have done our part. 
And if you just refuse to take advantage of what we have provided for you, then you're on your own. Don't come back and ask us for any, for any more help. And I think that would stand the test of the gospel. Because, again, when Jesus talks about the poor, the poor that lived in Jesus' time were like the poor of Haiti and Guatemala. You know, these, these were people who were stuck in poverty. They were never going to get out of it because of the, of the injustices in, in, the, in the society. And so, again, if one of these people had nothing to eat, you know, they went hungry. That's all there was to it. Um, in, in, in the city of Hayes, anybody that's got a pit in their stomach because they have nothing to eat, they can go to the sheriff's department whenever they want, and there are, pa- there are packages of food there from the St. Joseph's Food Pantry, from the Community Assistance Center. Now, granted, it's not going to be a filet mignon dinner. You know, they might have to go home and cook up a package of macaroni and cheese or something or have bread with peanut butter. And, but, it, but the thing with it is they will not be hungry. There will be something for them to eat. And so this is different from Jesus' time when there was nothing to eat. A poor person would just literally have nothing and probably not have the means to get something. And again, we see that in various parts of the world. But that's not the case in the United States. And so we, we can see then again that there is kind of a difference in, in when we're talking about these various kinds of poverty and, um, and who's suffering it and what should be done about it. Now, how do we sort through all this? How do we you know, get through the muck? Well, we're going to take a break here a little bit. And it, right, well, actually right now, we'll take a little break. And when we get back, I'm going to kind of throw out my solution to this. And you can take it for what it's worth. I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I've been hoping that maybe, just maybe, you know, this idea might get some traction somewhere and help us in making policy and kind of sorting through our obligations to the poor, um, both as Christians and as citizens. So we'll take a little break right now. Stay put, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. That's our job here. And the, the, the topic that we're trying to tackle today is a topic that probably never will be tackled, but we're going to give it a try because at least it gave us something to think about. And that is, what do we do about poverty? And how do we understand our obligations towards the poor? What are the obligations of the poor to themselves and things like that? And in the previous segment, we talked a little bit about how the problem with the whole thing is, is the problem hasn't been defined. You know, what is poverty? Who are, who are the poor? In the United States, poor people have cell phones. In the United States, poor people have air conditioning. In the United States, a lot of poor people own their own homes and own their own cars. How can you call that poverty? On the other hand, in poor parts of the world, you know, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic and, you know, Guatemala and Honduras, you know, in big chunks of Mexico and, you know, other places around the world in Indonesia, in Africa and so on, you know, you have people that are, you know, just literally, you know, living on scraps, you know, who just have nothing. And, and worse than having nothing, they have no opportunity. They're, they really have, don't have the means to better themselves. And so what we looked at in the, in the previous segment 
was the difficulty that we have in kind of trying to define the the problem of poverty, especially when what one person calls poor in one place is a completely different you know kind of poverty in another place. And so if that if that's the case, then how do we decide? How do we figure it out? Because you know again in the United States, I alluded to this a little bit in the previous segment. You know, anytime any news company wants to go out, they can send the reporters out and say, go out on the street and find a poor person. And then it's like, okay, fine. So they'll go out and they'll go, well, you know, here we found, here's, you know, Billy Bob and Matilda Jones. And, and um, you know, Billy Bob works a full-time job and a part-time job. And Matilda works a part-time job. And with them and their four kids, they just can't make ends meet. And then they'll have the interview with Bob and Matilda or Billy Bob and Matilda. And, and they'll go on about how unfair the system is because they work so hard and they can't really hardly afford to put food on the table and buy clothes for the kids and things like that. And so right there, we, you know, what they've done is they've, they've taken Billy Bob and Matilda and they've frozen them right there in time. And so at that particular point in their life, yeah, you know, they're in trouble. But the thing they never do, and again, when you when you study various economic studies and so on, they'll say, okay, but now, CNN, Fox, if you guys really want to do us a favor, why don't you follow Billy Bob and Matilda for the next 18 to 24 months and see what happens? Because what we typically see happening in the United States, now again, this is the United States, not the underdeveloped third world country. But what we see happening in the United States is a person who is poor today 18 months to two years from now will no longer be poor. They would have worked themselves out of poverty. You know, Billy Bob, you know, you know, he's working at a job right now that's not the greatest job in the world, but he's learning job skills and he's learning ethics. He's learning things like show up to work on time, work all day, you know, be pleasant with your coworkers, you know, try to get along with other people and so on. Very good. Now that Billy Bob has these job skills, he goes out and applies for a better job and gets a better job, and he makes more money. Same thing with Matilda. And so the two of them are working together, and within 18 months to 24 months, at least in the United States, most people work themselves out of poverty. Now, the problem is, is once Billy Bob and Matilda work themselves out of poverty, well, then, you know, Betty Lou and, and Jim Bob, they're starting off on the lower on the lower rung of the ladder. And so the news people, they can always go out and find someone who's poor. That's not hard. But if they really were, were interested in, in honest reporting, which, of course, none of them are, but if they were interested in honest reporting, they would say, okay, well, we found this poor person, but now we're going to follow him for the next, you know, 6 12, 18, 24 months, and we're going to see what happens to them. And if we find that in a preponderance of cases, people are starting off poor and remaining poor in the United States, we got a problem. But the fact is, most people work themselves out of poverty within a year and a half to two years. And that part never gets reported on. And to me, that's good news, and that should be reported on. And um, you know, we should take some, some consolation and be kind of proud of the fact that in our country, we provide people the means to work themselves out of poverty. But that never gets talked about. So what we saw in the previous segment, though, is there's just this – whenever we talk about poverty, it's like trying to hang jello on a nail. It's, you know, it's all nebulous and vaporous, and we don't really know, well, what is poor? Is poor not being able to run your air conditioner at a, at a, at a rate that you want to run it? Or is, is poor just in the fact that you have an air conditioner at all? Is poor that you, know, you have to get – you buy some of your kids' clothes at the Goodwill store? Um, or is poor the fact that your kids haven't had new, you know, haven't had any new clothes bought for them in a year? I don't know. And the problem is nobody else does either. And so I think that what we have to do, and again, this is kind of the, the novel part of, the, of this um, 
installment of double-edged sword, this is kind of my own personal contribution to the effort is, we need to come up with a standard. Standard itself can be argued with. That's not a problem. The standard is not going to be the last word. But we need to come up with a standard that says, okay, once our mythical family of four, just say mom and dad and two kids, how about that? That if we have this mythical family of four, you know, our, our prototypical family of four, mom, dad, and two kids, and once they have achieved this certain level of, of, of a standard of living, then the rest of the culture says, okay, mom and dad and two kids, we've done our part for you. Now you have to do for yourself. We have no more obligations to you, again, unless something tragic was to happen. If you know, one of the kids got into a terrible accident or contracted some disease and there was all these runs back and forth to Wichita and Kansas City for treatment and all of a sudden now the family finds itself in dire straits, well, then of course we have to help them out. But what I'm saying, though, is is we need to have some kind of a standard. And um, I don't know, we, we may call it the gadget standard. I don't care what you'll call it, but we have some kind of a standard. And I'm going to propose a standard as this. You got mom, dad, and their two kids. Let's we'll start off with that. And maybe let's say they have one vehicle. They have one car in their household. They have their, you know, they've got a three-bedroom home, you know, maybe – I don't know what the average is, maybe 1,000, 1,200 square feet home, you know, kind of a modest little house. They've got their house. You know, they have health care through dad's work. You got, you know, health, you know their, their um, health insurance paid for through dad's work. You know, maybe dad's making, say, 35000 a year. You know, mom's got a, got a part-time job and she's making 15000 a year. That's $50,000 a year. And the median income in the United States is 51000 a year. So they're a little bit below the median income. And yeah, some, you know, mom, whenever she goes shopping for groceries, she goes to the bargain shelf and sees what she can find there. And, and for some of the, especially for the kids' play clothes, they're just going to destroy anyway. She gets those from the secondhand shop and so on. And so I'm, th- I'm saying that what I think we could probably do is kind of come up with a, um, with, with a standard like that, that everybody understands what it is. And you use that as your starting point. And you say, okay, you know, the, the you know, just call it the poverty standard or whatever. And we say, you know, here we have this this American family, and they have met the poverty standard. You know, they're, they're they've you know the mom and the dad took advantage of the educational opportunities. They got educated. You know, they have their jobs. And and again, you know, maybe their vacations. You know, they're maybe every four or five years they can afford to. You know, they save up their money and they can afford to. I don't know, go to a Royals game in Kansas City or, you know, go someplace and stay in a motel, go to the Rocky Mountains or something. But the rest of the time, you know, the kids play City League baseball during the summer and, you know, maybe they drive to the lake on the weekend every now and again for kind of a little outing and a picnic and a camp out or something like that. Um, again, they're, they're not going on expensive vacations to the Caribbean and so on. But, you know, they're making it. They're doing their, they're doing their little thing. And see, I think that if we had some kind of a standard like that that everybody could refer back to and say, okay, as long as they have achieved this certain level of economic success, then the rest of the society, we're done. You know, you've, 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 you've achieved it, and, you know, unless something extraordinary happens to you, you know, you are not poor, and, and, you're, and you're taken care of. But again, like I said um, earlier, and also in the previous section, though, as long as everything is just kind of is, is relative, as long as poverty in the United States is relative, when you have someone you know, who has a vehicle and is paying for two cell phone contracts and claims to be poor now, it's like, well, you know, maybe you need to go back to the standard that we have that everybody understands and compare yourself to that standard. 
And what you're because what you're telling me is is you know maybe you have someone that's making you know two payments on on late model or new vehicles, and you know they're paying for cell phones for their kids and all these other things. And it's just like you know maybe you don't need all that. You know maybe you should cut back on some of that and get back to the standard that we have. Or again, if if you if you want to have the cell phones, fine, but then don't complain that you're buying all your clothes at the secondhand clothing store. Or you know if you're buying new clothes, fine, but then don't complain that you can't afford you know five cell phone contracts for the family. Things like that, because as long as the whole poverty thing is out there and it's relative and no one can really agree on what poverty is and no one can really agree on what the essentials of life are, then we're going to have this argument that's just going to go on and on and on and on. And every year, whenever, or every two years, whenever the House of Representatives is up for re-election, and every four years we have presidential elections and elections for the Senate and so on, you're going to have people out there hooting and hollering that, well, you know, you have, you have poverty out there and we need to do more for the poor. I'll never forget years ago, when I was in college, I worked for Dillon's in Manhattan, and I was I was I got home from school and ran upstairs and changed my clothes and everything. And I'm coming down, and I had a couple minutes before I had to head out the door, and um, the TV was on. Some of you might remember the old Phil Donahue show. I always thought Phil Donahue was just kind of a useful idiot. He's kind of a fool, but um, but he he had a bunch of angry women on the show. Because, um, you know, you had kind of these, you could see half of the audience seemed to be women who were, you know, educated and responsible and so on, doing what they're supposed to do. And you had the other side that were women who were not educated and irresponsible. And one of the women, you know, they were, they were talking about how hard it is to raise kids and, you know, having enough to see to their needs and so on and so forth. And one of these women, just in complete seriousness and total, I mean, she was just outraged. She gets up and she stamps on the floor and she says, all I know is that my daughter had to go to the prom this year in a used prom dress. And I want to know what the government's going to do about that. And, of course, then you have the other side of the studio audience with these women that are responsible and stuff. They're, they're, about, to, you know, they're about to blow a gasket as well. It's just like, since when does the government have the obligation of the taxpayer on the hook to buy anyone a prom dress, new or used? I mean, you know, this is, this is how insane this gets. And the thing is, as Christians and as Catholics, you know, th- this should really, you know, kind of disturb us on the inside. Because, again, as Christians and as Catholics, we know from the teachings of our Master and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have a serious obligation to help the poor. And we can't just dismiss that lightly. Um, On the other hand, again, when you look at the entire ethic that comes out of the New Testament— we can see from the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of St. Paul, you know, when we fuse those teachings together, you know, we can see that, you know, that our first obligation is to make sure that we ourselves are not poor. And again, in the United States, that means one thing. In another part of the world, it means something else. But since I'm broadcasting in the United States to an American audience, let's just limit our discussion to the scope of the United States, that I have an obligation to make sure that I am not poor. How do I make sure that I am not poor? So as St. Paul says in Galatians, I can pull my own load. Well, first of all, I stay in school. Second of all, I don't commit any crimes. Thirdly of all, if I get married, I get married, I have babies, and I stayed married. If I'm not married, I'm not having babies. You know, as a male, I'm not siring children. And as a female, I'm not giving birth to illegitimate children because those people just always end, you know, 70% of them end up poor. And so that's not a good thing. And so we can see then with the teachings that come to us from the scriptures, from everything from, from the obligations to our families, obligations to the poor, obligations to be chaste, all these things fit together. And if we do these things, 
Those things are there by the wisdom of God for our happiness and for our own, our own well-being, for our own welfare. But at the same time, you know, so it, again, it, when we look in, in the scriptures, we can see the obligations that we have to the poor. We can also see the obligations we have to make sure that we ourselves are not poor so that we don't become a burden on somebody else. And then if we, if we are to help the poor, as St. Paul says, help those who are truly poor. That is to say, those who have, you know, they, for whatever reason, you know, their back's against the wall and they have really no way of getting out. Now, on the other hand, you know, we, we, look at the, we look at the unwed mothers, we look at people that just make bad decisions. Sometimes you really don't have any choice because there's an immediate need and something has to be done to help these folks. But at the same time, you know, the, the, I think, you know, the part of the equation that never gets talked about is, number one, what exactly constitutes poverty? And again, if you have, you know, the, the, you know, someone that claims to be poor, but they're driving their own car, they're talking on their own cell phone and things like that, it's like, well, do they really have that much of a claim against the assets of the rest of us? I think that's a, that's a discussion that needs to be had. At the same time, when we see, um, you know, again, people making bad decisions and then reaping the, the, the bitter consequences of those bad decisions, Part of the of the conversation needs to be okay. You know, we'll help you out because you know we can see you're you're in a bad way. But now, what are you going to do to help yourself? And that doesn't get talked about that much because if you call into question someone's behavior, well, then you're judging, or then you're you're a bigot, or you're full of hate, or something like that. Well, you know, all those silly labels and stuff that we've been coming up with, you can tell they're not getting us anywhere. They're not solving any problems. And again, as our Lord has told us, you know, the poor we will always have with us and we can be generous with them whenever we want, that's true. And then that's what, and again, we, we have to, as Christians, take those admonitions to help the poor seriously. At the same time, we have to look at the rest of the teachings on poverty, especially in the New Testament, where, again, where St. Paul says, pull your own load, you know, carry your own weight, you know, mind your own business, work hard, earn the, earn the bread, you earn your own bread that you eat, like he says in 2 Thessalonians. And then again, what he says in, in, two, in, in 1 Timothy, when he tells Timothy, you know, that the church has the obligation to help those who cannot help themselves in any other way, and that those who can help themselves in some other way, usually by their, their affiliation with another family member and so on, are obligated to do so, so as not to make themselves a burden on everybody else. But again, as long as we have this, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lack of a clear definition, and the definition can always be argued with. The definition could probably even be redefined. You know, we might get to a point where they're going to say, well, you know, having a cell phone is a necessity. You know, having air conditioning and being able to cool your house down to 65 degrees on the hottest day of the year, that's a necessity. Well, you know, you're going to have a hard time convincing me of that. But, you know, if you want to have the, have the discussion, we'll have the discussion. But unless and until we come to some kind of a, of a common agreement and a common consensus as to what poverty is, we will never know to what extent and, and you know, the, the obligation that we have to help people out who are claiming to be poor. And again, I would just kind of throw that out there. It would be good to maybe have, you know, some, some university people or especially maybe at a Catholic university and they have um, courses on social justice and things like that to talk about these things and to say, well, you know, is this something, you know, how, how do we come up with some kind of a standard so that whenever anybody, whether it's a politician or a social worker or someone that's studying sociology or whatever, that whenever they're talking about the poor, they could refer to this one standard. You know, it's kind of like when we talk about a gallon, 
we know that a gallon has to have a certain volume to it. So when you buy a gallon of gas or a gallon of milk, you know you're getting your full amount that you pay for. It's because we have a standard gallon and everyone agrees on what the gallon is. Again, the problem is nobody in our culture, and it's just evidenced by the by the continual you know arguing and howling that goes on. There is no consensus as to what and who the poor are. It's you know we just kind of have this concept out there called poverty, and then if you know people throw it around like a political football. Well, vote for me because I am more compassionate with the poor than my counterpart is, or than my than my than my opponent is, or you know support our cause because we help more poor people than anybody else does. And again, you know you have organizations like Catholic Charities and the Salvation Army and stuff, you know that really do a good job of reaching out to the poor. But again, my question is, who are they? Um, you know, a lot of the poor are mentally ill. You have people that are that are chronically depressed, people that have bipolar disorder, people that are schizophrenic and so on. And it's going to be very, very difficult for those folks to be able to, you know, get and to hold down a, a steady job. You know, we have medication that helps out and things like that. But sometimes, you know, a lot of the poor are people that are, that are mentally ill. They'll be mentally ill for their whole life. That's what Jesus means. The poor you will always have with you. And those folks, I mean, about the, it seems like the best you can do is get them someplace to live and help them out as best you can, whether it's through a church program or through a welfare agency or something like that. And in a case like that, that's about the best we can do. But on the other hand, when you have people that, you know, that are either lazy or, again, someone that goes out and gets a DUI, someone that gets arrested for possession of drugs and things like that, there's no reason for someone to be drunk. There's no reason for someone to be handling drugs. And if they do those kind of things, then find themselves in jail and then can't, um, you know, all of a sudden now they got this bad mark on their work record and can't get a job and they find themselves in poverty. Well, then how does that put a put an obligation and, and make some kind of a claim against the assets of everybody else? I mean, I think, you, again, that conversation is not being had and it needs to be had. You know, the, the, um, we, we, we talk early and often about the uh, obligations that we have to help the poor and our obligations to the poor, and that that's that, and it has that conversation has to be had. Again, our Lord has told us that we're going to be judged on the last day, in a great to a great degree as to how we reached out and helped the poor. At the same time, though, there needs to be a working definition as to exactly who the poor are, and to to round off Jesus's teachings with the teachings of Saint Paul, that once we figure out who those poor are and what our obligations to them are, what are the obligations of the poor to themselves? Now, again, if it's a little kid, you know, you can't expect a five-year-old kid to go out and pull his own weight. He's a five-year-old kid, for goodness sake. You know, and again, when you have people that are, that are mentally ill, you know, people that are really, that because of just bad genes or, you know, bad wiring upstairs or whatever, and they, they are just unable to hold down a, a, a full-time job and to provide totally for themselves, well, then we're going to have an obligation to help those folks. I don't think anybody can argue with that. But, but when the rest of it is all so nebulous and ill-defined, it just seems like poverty is just used like a, like a political football to throw back and forth to get votes and to, you know, for people to get up and beat themselves in the breast and show you know, how I'm just so I'm more compassionate than anybody else. And I just don't think that does anybody any good. So again, this has been my you know, crude attempt to sort of broach the topic here on, on our little radio station here in, in Hayes, Kansas, to try to you know, get the idea out there that if we're going to have a fruitful conversation about who are the poor and what poverty is, there has to be a definition first. We have to have a working definition of what poverty is. And I think that working definition would have to include kind of like a, a case in point 
where we have X number of people in a household. They've got you know a certain household income, and that income allows them to do certain things. And that you know once those things are accomplished, then the rest of the society can say, okay, you know we've done our part for you. You're on your own now. Take care of yourself as best you can. But the thing of it is, there is no such standard out there. And I think that it's probably time for smart people. I mean, you know, if you're smart enough to get elected to public office, you're smart enough to have this conversation. If you're smart enough to have PhD behind your name in some university, you're smart enough to have this conversation. And that we would come up with some kind of a of a, an agreed upon definition that could be used as a starting point to determine whether or not someone was poor in the United States. And, um, and then therefore, if they really are poor, what are our obligations to them? And if they're not, you know, a way that, you know, policymakers and people could tell certain sections of the population, look, you know, I know it's no, it's no as Walter Williams says, it's not great shakes, you know, living on your income, whatever it is. Um, everybody always wants more. But according to our definition and according to any kind of reasonable interpretation of it, you have been provided for. You know, you have your job, you have your income, you have your needs taken care of. If you want to do better, then go get some more training and work for a better job and work your way up. But you don't have the right to come running to the church or the state, you know, the government or whatever, the taxpayer, and saying, you know, you owe us, when in fact we don't. You know, you've been taken care of. So it's, it's a difficult thing, and I'm not claiming to have solved the whole thing on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, but I do think it's a conversation that needs to be had. And um, it would be something that would, I think, that if we could come to a definition like that, it would really kind of clear up the waters a little bit, get some of the murk out of the waters, and um, we could have more fruitful conversations and and probably have um, better results in our efforts that we have to try to help the poor. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's v as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our Donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.